participate in the new covenant. And Lord, we pray that you would help us through this word to hold fast to our confession of faith and never depart from it, to recognize what we have and to live out the gospel. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine with me uh, the United States sending an astronaut to the moon. And the mission of this astronaut is to make grass grow on the moon. Is it going to work? Could he, if he took seed and he took some water and he took some fertilizer, maybe even he took some sort of lamp that was perhaps battery-powered, could we make grass grow on the moon? I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to... Well, it might happen briefly, you know, but the battery's going to run down and the water's going to run out and the conditions necessary for life we, were, we are going to find are not present on the moon. We can't make grass grow on the moon. And I want to suggest to you that that's a little bit like a dead heart. Someone who's unregenerate, someone who has not been born again, someone who does not know God, to to expect grass to grow on the moon is like expecting the fruits of the Holy Spirit to spring up where there is only death. And so As we look this morning at Hebrews chapter 13, I would invite you to look with me at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 16, and we're going to find this phrase at the end of verse 16. The last phrase of of verse 16 reads, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And and what I want to ask you is, do you want to please God? And, And I think that all of us are going to to answer enthusiastically, absolutely, we want to please God. Absolutely, we want to figure out what what is required of us, what does it look like to live lives that, that actually please the Lord. And if we ask what that looks like, here's what I would propose. It looks like to live a life that is pleasing to God. So this is kind of the main point of the sermon And I'm drawing this statement from different parts of this passage. So what does it look like to please God? It looks like sanctified people praising God from grace-established hearts seeking the city that is to come. I'm going to say that again. Pleasing God looks like sanctified people. We'll we'll talk about what that uh, looks like. But if you want to look at verse 12 in Hebrews chapter 13... You'll see there that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Sanctified people praising God. If you look in verse 14, you, or sorry, verse 15, you find the phrase, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Sanctified people praising God from grace-established hearts in verse 9 It is good for the heart to be strengthened, we might say established, by grace. Sanctified people praising God from grace-established hearts, seeking the city that is to come. There in verse 14, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
Uh, so this is what we're going to see today. And I, I think in, in broad terms, the big ideas that the author is getting across to his audience are, are we, can, we can enumerate them as three. Number one, don't return to Judaism. All through this letter, this author has been arguing, in the past, God spoke through the prophets. Now he's spoken in the Son. Don't go back to the old covenant now that the new covenant has been inaugurated. Don't go back to Judaism. Number two, recognize what you have. Recognize what you have in Christ. We'll, we'll see how he unfolds this. And then thirdly, live out the gospel. I said a word a moment ago about the broad context of the letter. And I think I have a slide uh, that will give you the chiastic structure of the letter to the Hebrews. I've, I think we've seen this before, and I just want to throw that up there. Not that one. Go to the... We don't have it. It's just that one. That's the only slide we have then. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, Matt's, dis Matt's disputing with you. Uh, scroll to the next one. There we go. That's it right there. Yes, very good. <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay, so at the center in 8, 1 through 6, we, we have um, the main point. The main point is this. We have such a high priest. Christ is the great high priest. And right before that, in chapters 5 through 7, it's all about how Christ became, he was appointed as the Melchizedekian high priest. And then right after that central section, it's all about how Christ has inaugurated the new covenant. So we have this high priest who is the, the Melchizedekian high priest who has inaugurated the new covenant. So don't be like the wilderness generation, chapters 3 and 4 who failed to believe and enter the land of promise, but rather, chapters 10 through 12, believe and enter the land of promise. And then one, chapters 1 and 2, we must pay much closer attention because God has now spoken in his son. And now in this section we're in here, 12 through 25, do not neglect him who is speaking. So what I want to draw your attention to here is the way that the center of the letter, really chapters 5 through 10, is all about the new covenant. And what we're getting here at the end, it's almost as though in 13, 1 through 8, the author was asking the, ask, answering the question, how do we live now that the new covenant has been inaugurated? And he gave us this list of commands, almost like a new Ten Commandments in 13, 1 through 8. This is how you live as people who partake of the new covenant. And now, in the passage we're looking at today, 13, 9 through 16, it's almost like the author is asking and answering, how do we worship now that we participate in the new covenant? And that's what he's going to address. This is what worship looks like in the new covenant in 13, 9 through 16. So if, if you, you can take that away now, John, thank you. Um, if we look together at this passage, actually go back to the one that has the text here. Um, uh, Yes, that one. Thank you. Uh, let me draw your attention to the way that verse 9 and verse 16 both open with do not statements. And these do not statements are bracketing this material. So if we look together at verse 9, the author says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now I'm going to pass over the next phrase and, and draw your attention to where he says, well, I have to read the next phrase. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. We'll come back to that. Not by foods. Now, I think when he references foods, and then in verse 10, he's going to speak of how we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's referring to the Jewish food laws that were commanded in the Old Testament, and then to the Jewish sacrificial regulations. 
And we read earlier in the service from Leviticus chapter 7, which outlined the way that certain sacrifices, the priests, could eat of the sacrifices. So I think this is what the author has in mind, and I think essentially what he's saying to his audience is something like this. Don't let anyone tell you that now that Christ has died and been raised from the dead, you need to still keep the, the commandments of the old covenant. You don't have to eat kosher anymore. We can think of uh, the ministry of the Lord Jesus where when he said that it's out of the heart that bad things come, sins come. It's not what goes into a person, but what comes out of a person that defiles him. And then Mark adds in Mark 7, thus he declared all foods clean. So we can think of, of Jesus declaring all foods clean. We can think of uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, where the Lord shows Peter this vision of all these unclean animals, and he tells him, rise and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten unclean food. And the Lord says, don't call unclean what I have declared to be clean for you to eat. So I think the author of Hebrews, in keeping with that broader early Christian teaching, Mark 7, Acts 10, is saying, don't let anyone oppose upon you strange and diverse and strange teachings, teachings that are foreign to the gospel, teachings that require obedience that belonged to the old covenant situation and no longer belong or do not fit in the new covenant situation. Do not be led away. And it's interesting the way he words this, isn't it? Do not be led away. Uh, you, we can think earlier in the letter, in, back in chapter 2, of how he encouraged his audience not to drift away from the truth of, of the gospel. And, and also, this is similar language to uh, Hebrews 6, when he says uh, something like, let us be carried forward to maturity. So we don't want to be led away from the gospel. We want to be carried forward or, or led forward into maturity. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. It's fascinating, I think, that he's talking about old covenant regulations and he's calling them strange. And there's an interesting uh, wordplay. We, we, we talked last two weeks ago about how earlier in 13.2 he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, strange people. So strange people you welcome in, strange teaching you refuse to receive. And, and you get the same dynamic in, in the letters of John, where John is saying, welcome traveling missionaries, but don't welcome those who bring another message. So don't be led away by strange, diverse and strange teachings. And then he says there in verse 9, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Now, I think what he's getting at is the difference between a law-based, performance-based approach to trying to please God and a faith-based, trusting approach to pleasing God. So the law-based says, I must do this. I must fulfill these requirements. I must meet this standard. That's how the law-based, performance-based approach works. But the grace and faith-based performance or, or uh, approach says, it's not a performance at all except by the Lord Jesus. It says, I can't make grass grow on the moon. The moon's dead. I can't make the fruits of the Holy Spirit spring up in my dead heart. I'm dead. But he can do that. He can give life. He can give life. And, and he 
has promised not only to, to give life now on a dead moon, but also to renovate the atmospheric conditions of the moon at the resurrection and make it so that life will continue. So it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. I was reading uh, this passage aloud to our family this week, this week, and I think it was my wife that asked this question. What does it mean for the heart to be strengthened by grace? That's a great question. And I think the best way to start answering that question is to say, well, how is the author of Hebrews referred to grace prior to this in the letter? So here are the previous references to grace in Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 2.9. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It says that um, Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's what it means to be strengthened by grace. It's to know that the Lord Jesus, by the grace of God, has tasted death for you. You deserve to die. He tasted death for you. And then there's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, where the author says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think in part... Drawing near to the throne of grace means coming back to the truth of the gospel and being reassured that this crushing load of guilt that I feel has been dealt with by Christ's death on the cross. That these, these demanding, burdensome obligations, this sense of duty that is so anxiety-causing for us, it's really been answered. The Lord Jesus has achieved perfect righteousness. And by faith I'm hidden in him. And I'm counted righteous by faith, not by a required performance. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods that you eat and laws that you keep. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Look also at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Here the author says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Where there is grace, where there are hearts strengthened by grace, and it, this word strengthened is an interesting word. It, it's often translated elsewhere, elsewhere something like confirmed or established. It, a heart that's established and confirmed by grace is I think the author is getting at a heart that's been renewed, a heart that's been transformed. It's the, it's the heart of flesh that has replaced the heart of stone. It's the regenerate heart. Where that has happened, where that has happened, you have someone who knows, I have no right to God's mercy. I have no right to God's forgiveness. And therefore, I am in no position to be judgmental toward other people. I'm in no position to be condemning of other people. In fact, I'm called to love others the way that I've been loved. And I've been loved with a lavish, indescribable mercy and grace. Where that's lacking, where you don't have that, I think this is what the author is talking about in 1215 when he speaks of this root of bitterness that springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. The root of bitterness comes in when the heart is not established, confirmed, strengthened by grace. 
it's grace that overcomes bitterness. It's grace that liberates us from condemning judgmental approaches to other people. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. I think he's speaking of the way, as he's outlined through the letter to this point, the way that those who tried to keep the old covenant, they, they could not do it. And it did not achieve the desired end. We've talked as we've worked through Hebrews how the desired end of the old covenant seems to be to restore God's people to God's presence so that they live in God's presence and they see God's face. But even with all of the regulations of the old covenant, as the author details in Hebrews 9, it was only the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies and he could only do it once a year. So the the covenant really couldn't get the job done. And, and I think this is what the author is getting at when he speaks of the way that those devote, those who walked in all those regulations concerning foods, in the final accounting, they were not benefited by them. There was a, there was a cleansing of the flesh. There was a, a, an ability to remain in the camp and not be consumed by God's holiness, but they didn't, they didn't achieve the goal of living in God's presence and seeing God's face. So the author is saying, don't be led away by this performance-based, law-requirement approach to knowing God. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Then he says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, I think what the author is, is turning to address has to do with this radical new situation that these early Christians would find themselves in. Probably many of these were were Jewish people who have now converted to the Lord Jesus. And they've grown up identifying with a community that ate in certain ways, that practiced certain sacrificial rituals. And they are now separated from that community And they're no longer going to eat that way, so they don't identify with those people anymore. And they're no longer going to offer those sacrifices, and that further cuts them off from the people that they grew up with. And and the author is saying, look, I know you're out with the Jews, but you're in with Christ. You're out with your people, but you're in with the Lord Jesus. You're you're out with your community. In, in, In a way, your nation the people that you identify with. You don't belong to them anymore, but you do belong to the people of the Lord Jesus. So he says, it's almost as though he's saying, I know what you don't have. I know what you don't have. You no longer have the comfort of the synagogue. You no longer have the joy of the the thrice yearly visit to Jerusalem for the festival. You no longer have the regularity of the food laws and the sacrifices and so forth. I know that. But look at what you do have. Don't go back. Look at what you have. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, we're going we're to come back to this later in the passage when the author speaks of sharing what you have down in verse 16. Um, but I, I want to submit that what he's talking about when he speaks of what we do have a right to eat from, I think he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And and I think he's getting at the way that if you're right with God, 
If your faith is in Christ, if you are in good standing as a member of a local church, you have a right to the table. You have a right to celebrate, not not at an altar where a sacrifice is offered in an ongoing way or in a repeated way, but rather you, you commemorate the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I think that's what he's saying when he says we have an altar, so in a way... If we want to identify, and all, I think he's speaking metaphorically using Old Covenant terminology to speak of what God has accomplished in Christ. But if we want to identify the altar, I would say it's the cross. And, and then um, the eating from that altar, I think, is celebrating the death of the Lord Jesus in the past, which is what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when he says here in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, he seems to envision those priests who in an ongoing way are continuing to practice the old covenant rituals, even though the Lord Jesus has died, they've rejected the Messiah, they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and they're continuing to try to operate according to the old covenant rituals, and as a result, they have no right to take of the Lord's Supper because they don't identify as those for whom Christ died. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And now verse 11 The author says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And we we read in Leviticus 7 earlier in the service a description of this very thing where um, some of the meat from the sacrifice could be eaten by the priests and other uh, remains of the sacrificial animal would be burned outside the camp. Uh, It's interesting. It's also to be found in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27, which is the Day of Atonement. The remains of the animals who were slain in the Day of Atonement rituals, their, their bodies were to be burned outside the camp. And so the author, what he's saying to us here, as he says in verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. What he's saying is Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant sacrificial system. And he's saying again, in the death of the Lord Jesus, the final sacrifice to end all the other sacrifices has come. So this is part of, again, that message of, don't go back to the old covenant. Rest in the Lord Jesus. You need do nothing more to satisfy the justice of God. It has been done. Christ is the fulfillment. Rest in him and his cleansing. Look at verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. You notice in John 19, the passage that was read a few moments ago, how the, the place called Golgotha was near the city, but it was outside the city. It, the, the text speak of them taking Jesus out. They took him outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem to a place near the city, but outside the city, and there he was crucified. And the author of Hebrews is seeing a point of correspondence between that and the burning of these these animals outside the camp. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In order to sanctify the people Through his own blood. This means that if you are a person who believes in the Lord Jesus, you have been cleansed. You have been sanctified. 
You have been set apart and devoted to God. The Lord Jesus has done it. It's, it's completed to telestai. It's all done. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And I would remind you what the author said in Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The conscience has been purified. This week I came across a quotation from C.S. Lewis who writes this. He, he, he speaks of the gospel and the way that it is framed with the sole purpose of praising the divine compassion. In other words, God's, God's merciful, compassionate love for his people. The gospel, it, it, this is what is com in, communicated and stressed and emphasized. God's divine compassion as boundless hardly credible and utterly gratuitous. Let's just think about those three words. God's compassion is boundless. There, there is no limit to the love of God directed to his people that results in their cleansing and their sanctification. Hardly credible. You know, we, we, I, heard, I heard a sermon this week and, and the, the pastor was describing how we're law people and we are. We, we're, we're justice people. Humans are, we're, it's like we're hardwired to know right and wrong, and we know what fairness is, and, and it kind of bothers us when fairness and justice are not maintained. And this is what makes the gospel hardly credible, because we know we don't deserve it. And we look at other people, and we know, you don't deserve it. It's hardly, believe, it's hardly credible. It's hardly believable that it would be this way. Utterly gratuitous. That means there is not, not a shred of merit. Not an, not an ounce, not the smallest measure of you deserve this in the gospel. Utterly gratuitous. He didn't have to do it and you in no way deserve it. That's what the gospel is. And then C.S. Lewis writes this phrase, the experience is catastrophic conversion. I think what he means when he says catastrophic conversion is it destroys us. It destroys us because we know I, there, I have no grounds for boasting. I have no grounds for exalting myself and from that position then judging and condemning other people. It, it is catastrophic conversion. And then Lewis writes, this is such a beautiful line, the man who has passed through it feels like one who has waked from nightmare into ecstasy. You go from the nightmare of knowing that the everlasting almighty wrath of God is on you and that you deserve punishment forever to the ecstasy of the divine compassion. That's what's being talked about right here in verse 12. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Uh, you know, this imagery that, I, that I've uh, also picked up from this sermon that I heard this week of, of something growing on the moon captures the way that the moon is a... It's, it's almost like the moon is the unclean realm of the dead. And, and we've talked, as we've 
talked about the Bible together, about how the Garden of Eden is this realm of life, this, this clean, holy realm of life. And outside God's presence is the unclean realm of the dead. And, and for the unclean realm of the dead to be sanctified, to be cleansed of its defilement and its contamination, that's what's being spoken of here when it says Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The blood of Jesus makes it so that the unclean realm of the dead is the clean realm of life. And we belong to the unclean realm of the dead. And when the blood of Christ is applied to us, when we hear the message of the gospel and the Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe... Everything the Bible says about me is true, and I am just that guilty. And Jesus is just that good, and his sacrifice is just that effective. When that happens, we belong to the clean realm of life. And we wake from the nightmare into the ecstasy. In verse 13, uh, the author, it's interesting, he's going to, He's going to return to this idea of outside the camp. If you look at verse 11 again, um, John, you can put that slide back up on the screen. Uh, the one with the text of Hebrew. Yeah, right there. You, you see that phrase outside the camp that's highlighted there in verse 11. Now, if you look at verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You see how the, God, the, the author is saying, on the one hand, don't go back to Judaism. See what you have in the gospel. And then live out the gospel. And living out the gospel means going to Jesus, coming to Jesus. And, and, and what he's saying here, it's as though the author is saying, look, I know that if you go to Jesus and you identify with those Christians instead of those Jews, the Romans are going to persecute you. That's what's going to happen. Bear the reproach Jesus endured. That's what he's saying. The reproach that Jesus endured is, is the reproach that results from him being faithful to God as a result of which the seed of the serpent hate him, reject him, and ultimately crucify him. And now by faith, we're united to Christ, and we, we are the collective seed of the woman, the individual, collective seed of the individual seed of the woman. In other words, we're united to Christ by faith, we're hidden in him, we're, un, we're joined with him, and in the same way that the world hate, hated him, the world hates us. And the author says, bear it. Bear the reproach he endured. Go outside the camp to the Lord Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, what we're, what we're saying to you is, this is the way to life. This is the way to actually experience joy, to be reconciled to God, to be somebody who is able to forgive others, to, to be somebody who can have harmonious relationships in which the root of bitterness doesn't spring up and cause many to be defiled. This is the way to life. This is the way to a blade of grass actually being alive on the dead moon. This is the way. If you want to live, you're going to need to go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And our society is reproaching Christians in all kinds of ways. And what we hope is that you'll see that the sanctification of his blood is worth whatever you lose in this life. I remember years ago hearing the testimony of a, a, a man who had been a he had grown up in a Muslim land with Muslim parents, and then he had become a Christian, and it had cost him everything. It had cost him his family. It had cost him his homeland. It, it, 
his father was one of the richest man, men in one of these countries, and, and he, he stood at the former location of Kenwood Baptist Church, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, I lost a lot, but I gained everything. That's the gospel. It'll cost you a lot, but you'll gain everything. You'll gain Christ. You'll gain reconciliation with God. And, and if, you're not, if you're here and you're not a believer, this is what we want for you. We want you to come to Jesus and experience this catastrophic conversion which destroys you but then builds you up and restores you and makes you what God meant for you to be. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he, uh, he endured. Verse 14, for here we have. Notice how the we have statement in verse 14 stands across from the we have statement in verse 10. And in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Verse 14, here we have no lasting city. And I think what he's saying is something like this. I know the Jewish community has Jerusalem with the temple in it. And I know that you don't have a, a, a capital city and you don't have a temple. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, which will be the fulfillment of the earthly Jerusalem and everything symbolized by its temple. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, verse, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That sacrifice of praise also, I think, calls back to verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Those who serve the tent, they're going on with their sacrifices and their offerings. And the author of Hebrews is saying, we don't worship that way anymore. The kinds of sacrifices that we now offer are sacrifices of praise. And then he goes on there in verse 14, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We might, we might say the fruit of lips that confess his name. And the name in view here, I think, is the name of the Lord Jesus. The fruit of lips that confess his name. Now, let's go back to that, that statement there in verse 14. Uh, sorry, verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The author is saying, always, all the time, our hearts should be resonating with praise to God. Are you continually praising God for the gospel? If not, the remedy to that is to meditate more on the gospel, is to think longer and harder on the depth of your sin and the glory of God's grace to the point that you begin to feel the wonder and when this starts to happen, everything will be changed. Everything will be changed. If, if you want to become a person who is grateful, if you want to become a person who is not critical, judgmental, condemning, this is the path. The path to it is meditating on, on the gospel to the point that you are continually offering up a sacrifice of praise for your particular circumstances. This fits exactly with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, where he says, uh, Rejoice always, 
Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Your circumstances are the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. How are you supposed to respond to them? Rejoice. Pray. Thank. And if you're not responding that way, I think the remedy is go back to Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. And, and we need to think through, why was Jesus necessary to suffer? Why was blood needed to sanctify me? What is accomplished by the sanctification? And when we get this, we will be people who, whatever we suffer, whatever we are faced with, we're ready to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that, that confess his name. Um, I think there's another uh, point of contact here with the end of verse 15, the fruit of lips, and, and back up in verse 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace because it's out of the overflow of the heart that, that the mouth speaks. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name comes from the heart that is strengthened by grace. The heart that is strengthened by grace bears the fruit of lips that confess his name. Verse 16. Do not neglect. Now the first thing I want to call your attention to about that phrase at the start of verse 16, do not neglect, is the way that you have the same phrase at the beginning of verse 2. If you look back up at Hebrews 13 verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So here in verse 16, do not neglect to do good if we ask What's he talking about doing good? What, what kind of good things does he want us to do? Well, I think he's basically pointing us back to 13, 1 through 8. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I think all of that is rolled up in verse 16, do not neglect to do good. Now, um, I, I failed to say some things when we were in 13, 1 through 8 that I want to take this occasion to throw out. Um, I want to... I, I, I'm so encouraged by Kenwood Baptist Church, but I just want to put some things before you that are ways that we can not neglect to do good. I, I want to encourage you to, to be devoted to your small group and be mindful of your small group leader or perhaps whoever it is that's hosting your small group. And, and you, could, you could do all kinds of things to not neglect to do good and to add to the hospitality ministry of that small group. You could say to the small group leader, hey, could we start a rotation where some of us come over early and maybe help you clean up if perhaps you learn that the small group leader starts cleaning at like noon that day and cleans all afternoon in preparation of your coming. So, you know, you, you could, you could uh, come up with some idea like that to serve your small group leader. Or you could say to whoever hosts your small group, hey, you've been doing this all these weeks. What if we hosted from time to time? Or what if we made a rotate? There are all kinds of ways that you could do this. That's one thought. Another thought, um, Lord willing, this next April, April 4 and 5, we're going to have a uh, Kenwood Network work Conference, and we hope to bring back a lot of people who have gone out from Kenwood to serve min in ministry in very, various capacities, and it's a great opportunity to 
show hospitality to traveling ministry workers. All these, all these folks are going to come back to uh, Louisville, Lord willing, we hope, and we'd love to house them in the homes of Kenwood members. So at some point, I think, there'll be like a sign-up that goes out, and, and I would urge you to hear this word and to, to not neglect him who is speaking, Hebrews 12, 25, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have there in verse 16. Um, so, so there are all kinds of ways for us to show hospitality. Um, also, perhaps your small group has adopted a, a missionary, and, and perhaps they're collecting gifts for that missionary right now, and, and perhaps this is a great opportunity for you to, um, to do that. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention is taking up the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which comprises well over half the annual budget of the International Mission Board. It's a great opportunity to share what you have. Let me say a few more words about that phrase, to share what you have. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. The word translated, share what you have there, it's, it's the Greek term um, koinonia, which, as you know, can be translated communion or fellowship or participation. And there are some places where the word koinonia is rightly translated contribution. So, so this term has this, this somewhat wide range of meaning in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 2.42 when it says that they were devoted to fellowship. Acts 2.42, you know, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia, to the fellowship. The, I think it's like the communion of the saints there. It's also used in 1 Corinthians 10.16 when it speaks of sharing in the cup. And, and sharing in the bread and participating thereby in Christ, that's koinonia, communion. When, when we take communion, we're entering into koinonia. It's used in Romans 15, 26 and a number of other places to speak of the financial contribution that the church in Rome made for the saints in uh, other places where Paul was taking up uh, collections for. Same in 2 Corinthians 8 and in 2 Corinthians 9. This term koinonia is used to refer to the financial contribution. It's used in 1 John 1 verses 3, 6, and 7 to speak of our communion with God. We have fellowship with him, these kinds of statements. It's in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, communion of the Holy Spirit, this communion with God. And then it's also used uh, with reference to communion with the church. Well, which is in view here? I think we should answer yes. All of it's in view here. I think, look, listen to this. The author is saying, do not neglect to do good and to enjoy the communion of the saints in all these ways. To give financially, absolutely. To enjoy the Lord's Supper together with the people that you believe with, absolutely. To commune with God through the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. To commune with one another? All of these things, I think, are in view when the author says, do not neglect to do good. And we might say, to enjoy the privileges of church membership, if I can put it into our modern terminology. To share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What sacrifices? Well, sanctified people, praising God from grace-established hearts, 
seeking, to, seeking the city that is to come. Not going back to Judaism, knowing what we have, and living out the gospel. That's what the author, I think, is communicating to his people. When, when we hear these kinds of things, when we contemplate the gospel, don't you want to give? Don't you want to sacrifice? Don't you want to, to welcome people into your home and to commune with God and one another? Don't you want to please God? You know, if, if we were somehow to take a visit to the moon, and if we were to see something alive there, like a blade of grass springing up out of the ground, we would know that's a miracle. That's a miracle, and we would be astounded at it. And here, I'm, again, I'm borrowing from this sermon that J.O. passed on to me from a guy named Jim Neuheiser. We wouldn't say, where's the, where's the whole flower bed full of tulips? No, we would say, life. Look at the blade of grass. And as we, as we relate to one another, we, we should be gracious with one another, and we should celebrate the life that we see that results from hearts being strengthened by grace. There might not be a flower bed full of tulips. There might not be a whole field full of fruit trees. But if there's life, there's reason to praise God. There's reason to praise God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that what you've done for us in Christ would be so appreciated, so celebrated in our hearts that we don't have to be guilted into joining the outreach that is happening this afternoon from our church. I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are thrilled to do this, hearts that are eager to have the opportunity to go tell others about the Lord Jesus, about the sanctification that he has accomplished through his blood. Lord, we think of the way that the law places these demands upon us, but doesn't give us anything needed to fulfill them. And we praise you for the way that the gospel brings good news that bids us fly and gives us wings. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would cause these words that the author of Hebrews wrote to take root in our hearts, to strengthen our hearts by grace, and to transform everything about us. Lord, we ask that you would make us people whose gracious words, in the words of Proverbs 16, 24, are like a honeycomb sweet to the soul, refreshing to the bones. Make us gracious people, Lord, people who give life because we have experienced life. And Lord, we pray that you would give success to our efforts to share the gospel this afternoon. We pray that you would do the miracle, that there would be blades of grass on the moon, that people would repent and believe the gospel we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.